meditate on what was just written. So if the Bible actually tells you when to stop. Stop reading. <laughs> and I know some of us are on like a, a, a plan for the year or whatever, and we're trying to buzz through it. There's times we need to just pause. So at the end of this message this morning, there's going to be a pause. And we're going to take time to pray and seek God. After that, we'll, we'll take up our offering and do announcements and all that. But I wanted to get in to the reading of the word of the Lord this morning. Would you stand with me? I feel the presence of God here today. I know that he's wanting to touch our hearts and speak to us, and I'm thankful for his presence here. Can we just pray and invite the Lord to move in our hearts, in our, our minds today? Jesus, we surrender ourselves to you. We surrender to what you want to do, Lord. You want to encounter us today. You want there to be a move of your spirit. Father, I pray now in the name of Jesus that there would be a divine touch of your spirit here in this place, God, that we would hear what you have to say and that we would feel the touch and the draw of your spirit, God, and be moved by it in Jesus' name. Move to take action and, and uh, make a change in our life. Do something, Lord Jesus, to transform us and make us new. Lord, we worship you. We give you the thanks and the praise. We exalt your name, Jesus. We worship you today, and we thank you for it in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Shake somebody's hand next to you. High-five them. Tell them you're glad to see them this morning. Amen. And you can be seated. Altars. Altars. What is an altar? Well, in the Old Testament, we actually have a phrase in, in church, the church world, that we say, uh, we've come to have an encounter with God. You know, you, you, I've seen whole conferences, church meetings set up around the premise of an encounter. I'm going to have an encounter with the presence of God. I'm going to touch God. God's going to touch me, and there's going to be this move of his spirit in my life, and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to encounter God. I'm going to have an encounter with him. And largely, we mean something positive when we say that. In the church world, we, we mean that we're going to have a meeting. You know, oftentimes when you hear the word encounter, it's not necessarily a negative word. It doesn't come from a negative premise, but it comes from a, a positive one. It comes from one of, uh, of, of, of good feelings. You know, you're having an encounter with somebody. It, was, it comes from the idea of an unexpected meeting. You, you, you bump into somebody, oh, I encountered them today. I, I ran across them. I, and uh, met with them, and, and uh, however, I, I was looking through this word and, and going into the, the back end of the word, if you will, and it comes from the Latin and the French, which uh, means to be up against. Uh, encounter, actually, in its, in its original definition, is not really a positive word. It's somewhat of a negative word, actually. Uh, it means to almost be in an adversarial position, something against or contrary or uh, working contrary to, you, you meet up with an enemy perhaps, and there's this conflict. And the encounter you have is not necessarily a good one. It's not necessarily a, a, uh, a positive one, but it is one of uh, fear, foreboding, and and. Uh, disturbance, disruption. And so when we, when we talk about having an encounter with God, if we're looking at it from the, from the back end of the word, we're looking at it as a 
rather a negative experience, that we're having kind of this adversarial uh, interaction with God. And that's not exactly what we want. I mean, it's not what we came to do here this morning. At least I hope you didn't come here to fight with God or to wrestle with him. But <laughs> oftentimes, we don't even realize how we are wrestling with the Lord. Genesis chapter 35, God said to Jacob, Arise and go to Bethel and dwell there. Make an altar there to the God who appeared to you when you fled from your brother Esau. God speaks to Jacob and he says, go back to Bethel. Go back to Bethel, Jacob, and dwell there and make an altar there. So we're going to talk about this thing that Jacob does. He goes back to Bethel and then he makes an altar there. And uh, the first question I had is, why is he, what is Bethel that he's going back to? So Jacob has history in this place called Bethel. What is the history of Jacob's Bethel experience, his encounter with God. And, and if you turn with me to Genesis, uh, Genesis chapter 28, we, we find Jacob just after he has deceived his brother, he's robbed him of his birthright, so he's not friends with his, his twin brother Esau. And, and Jacob, with the help of his mother, has deceived his father into giving him the blessing of the firstborn. Jacob is the second or he's the twin, they're twins, Jacob and Esau are twins, but Jacob is the second-born twin. And so, so Jacob has this, this desire to be number one. In fact, when they were born, Esau, the Bible says when he came out, he was red all over. He had hair, red hair, he was ruddy and, and, and kind of a bulky child, and so they called him Esau, which means red. And, and Jacob was grabbing onto the heel of his brother as he was being born, and so they called Jacob Jacob, which means heel grabber, as if Jacob was trying to pull him back in, say, wait, me first. And that was, you know, that was his, his mode in life. From that moment forward, Jacob lived up to the identity that was placed on him. Just Selah, Selah. Sometimes we live up to the expectations others put on us. They label us with some kind of a name or an identity, a, oh, oh, they're a shy child. We live up to that expectation. And we might have a proclivity to being a little introverted, but it doesn't necessarily mean we're shy or awkward. It just means we have a certain personality trait that enjoys being alone, and that's okay. Anyway, that, this is, Jacob lived up to the name placed on him. He lived up to the expectations placed on him. And he deceived his brother, tricked him. Really, I mean, Esau fell for it. Esau came in, was hungry from hunting. Jacob was the kind of guy that liked to stay home and make cinnamon buns and, and uh, you know, soup. And, and no doubt he had his little pot of soup going. The Bible says he had a, a, a lentil stew. Anybody ever had a lentil stew? Delicious, very yummy, good stuff. But all, all in all, lentil stew is a humble meal. It's not... You know, it's not filet mignon. It's not uh, beef Wellington from Gordon Ramsay's restaurant, right? It's it's a it's a humble meal. It's just a little pot of soup. And Esau comes in and says, "I'm hungry." And Jacob says, "Okay, I'll give you this soup if you sell me your birthright. You sell me the privilege of being the firstborn son." And Esau said, "What? Okay, fine." And it was just like that. 
For a bowl of soup, he traded the privileges of being the firstborn, which in those days were quite significant. It was double the inheritance. You know, if there was two children, dad would split up the money three ways and give the eldest two portions and the youngest a third of his inheritance. So the eldest got, got the sweet deal. And so Esau traded all that in for a bowl of soup. So, I mean, that's on Esau. But Esau wasn't very happy about it. When he got to the end of his bowl of soup, he realized what he had traded in for the temporary pleasure of a bowl of soup. And I think maybe we could all identify that. There's been times in our life we traded in something of higher value for something as simple as a bowl of soup. Right? It might have been the, the, the pleasure of sin, but it only lasted for a season. It only lasted for a short time. And when we came to ourselves, we realized, what did I just trade in? And now what am I left with? So Jacob is running away from home. Long and short of it, Esau isn't happy with Jacob. In fact, Esau pledged that when dad died, Jacob was a dead man. And mom said to Jacob, because I don't want to have two funerals on the same day, you've got to go live with your uncle Laban in Haran. So Jacob leaves Beersheba where they're living, and he goes to a place called Haran. And while he's on his way, running from his problems, Selah, pause, think about that. Running while he's running from his problems, Jacob is not looking for God. Jacob isn't on his knees begging for mercy. Jacob didn't go to a revival meeting and, and find the, the, the special speaker to lay hands on him, anoint him with oil, and pray over him in the name of the Lord. No, Jacob is running from his problems. He's leaving town. He's leaving Esau high and dry. He's leaving his dad. Didn't even kiss him goodbye. Just up and gone the next day. And the Bible says he laid down in a place to sleep. The Bible says he laid down on a place called Luz, which means almond tree. He laid down next to an almond tree. And he dreamed a dream, and behold, there was a ladder. There's a picture of this, an artist's rendition, if you will, of what happened. A ladder set up on the earth, and the top of it reached to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on this ladder. While Jacob is using a rock for a pillow, God encounters Jacob there and gives him a dream. And when Jacob woke up, he said, wow, surely the Lord is in this place and I did not know it. Selah. <laughs> Pause. Think about that for a minute. Jacob encounters God. Notice, Jacob isn't looking for God. Jacob is running from his problems after deceiving his dad and, his, and tricking his brother into giving him the birthright. He's now running for his life, and God meets him there, and Jacob wakes up and goes, Whoa, God was here, and I didn't even know it. Jacob was not looking for God, but God was looking for Jacob. In fact, if you look throughout the, the entirety of Scripture, you'll find that pattern repeats itself over and over and over. God is often the one on the pursuit, while humanity is often the one on the run. God is always the one who's coming after and revealing and opening eyes and setting bushes on fire and parting waters, while man is warning and trying to get away from his problems. 
Look at Adam in the garden. Adam and Eve are running from their problems. The Bible says they took fig leaves to cover themselves. Anybody ever touched a fig leaf before? There certainly is a lot more comfortable leaves to put on than a fig leaf. It is the, probably the worst kind of leaf you can use to make a garment out of. It's a very scratchy and irritating leaf. And they use that to cover themselves with. Not very smart. But anyway, they were. That's what they did. They covered themselves with the fig leaf. And God goes looking for Adam and Eve. Where art thou? Adam, where are you? Where are you? Later on, we, we encounter a man by the name of Moses. Moses running from Egypt because he killed an Egyptian. On the back end of a desert for 40 years. Moses was 80 years old, and the Bible says that while he was on the backside of a mountain, God sets a bush on fire and speaks to him out of the bush. And Moses says, who are you? What, what is this? He goes, turns aside, the Bible says, to see this great sight, for there was a bush on fire, but it was not consumed. God was looking for Moses. If you look for, uh, uh, down the scriptures even further, you'll find a man by the name of Gideon. Again, Gideon is running. The, the nation of Israel is being attacked by their enemies, the Philistines. And the Bible says Gideon is hiding behind a wine press, trying to sh uh, beat out some grain to feed his family. Because if they found him, they would have confiscated his grain and taken it from him. And he wouldn't have been able to feed his family. So he's hiding. He's running. He's hiding behind a, 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 a wine press, trying to make some food for his family. Jeremiah. Jeremiah, the prophet, the Bible told, tells us that God called Jeremiah from the womb. He said, I've formed you in the belly, and I've de destined you to be a prophet to the nations. Before Jeremiah could even utter a cry, a mama, a dada, I'm hungry, or I want a snack, God says, I've called you and I've ordained you to be a prophet. What am I trying to get at here this morning? Every time God encounters somebody, it's because he's on the pursuit. He's trying to encounter you. And I'll just stop and seal up for a moment on this point. That is exactly why you find yourself in this place today and in the seat you're sitting in today. It's not because you went looking for God. It's not because you were curious about what God was wanting to say. But God was actually pulling and drawing you. And if you'd be paused for a moment, look back over your life, we'd all come to probably the same conclusion. I wasn't looking for God, but God was looking for me. I wasn't trying to encounter him, but he encountered me. Whether it was as a child, I was in a church, and I felt the presence of God as my parents were in service, or whether I was not even close to being in church, but the presence of God reached out to me and grabbed a hold of my life. My dad didn't always serve God. He was a uh, Quite a wild man, in fact. He was a hippie, had a beard bigger than mine and a lot more hair. And he was, uh, he was a wild man. In fact, I, I called his pastor recently, his first pastor, and I said, tell me the story of how you met my dad and how he came to know the Lord. He said, the first time I met your father, I applied for a job at a hospital linen washing plant where they washed the bed linens, towels, and everything. And your dad was doing jump rope. He was the manager of the plant, and so they sent me to go find Tom. And he, they went to go find Tom, and Tom was in short shorts, no shirt on, and jumping skip rope 90 miles an hour. Just And he didn't even stop skipping. He had been skipping for over an hour, and his sweat was pouring off his body. And he was an athletic, 
just fierce, this bearded hippie jump roping in, in the work zone where he, was, where he was supposed to be managing, and instead of managing, he was preparing himself for his next uh, triathlon event or whatever he was working on, his next rowing event that he was, he was in. And, and that, was, that was my dad. My dad was not looking for God. In fact, my, the, the story goes that my dad persecuted the pastor so bad that to the point where, where you know, they'd come, they'd come get around him and say, oh, preacher man, tell us, tell us, isn't coffee addicting? You know, because they, they'd be like, you know, is drugs bad for you? And Pastor Birdwell would say, yes, you shouldn't do drugs. It's, here's some scripture as to why that's not good. Well, what about coffee? Isn't coffee an addicting thing? What about chocolate? And Brother Birdwell was like, okay, fine, I'll give up coffee until we can get you through this. And, 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 and for the entire time that Brother Birdwell was reaching for my father, he didn't drink a drip of coffee. And when my dad finally got saved, his wife came up to him at the altar and said, Tom, is it okay if we start drinking coffee again? <laughs> my dad didn't even know Brother Birdwell did this because he wasn't looking for God, but God was looking for him. And if you think back over your life, there's a moment in your life where you realize God's after me. God's looking for me. God wants a relationship with me. And so Jacob encounters God and he wakes up and he goes, wow, this is cool. Let's rename this place. This place was called Luz, but let's call it Bethel. We're going to call this place Bethel. Bethel means the house of God. Jacob said, this has got to be God's house. I mean, there's a stepladder up to his room. He spoke to me. This has got to be his house. But Jacob leaves that place relatively unchanged. He, he makes a few changes. He makes a few commitments. But if you look at the rest of Jacob's story, he doesn't change a whole lot about himself. He goes on deceiving and, and conniving his way into his uncle's house. And he's now leaving his uncle's house. Many years go by. Jacob gets marries his two wives. I know. We'll save that for another day. Marries two wives, has lots of kids, amasses a great wealth of animals and servants, and now he's leaving his uncle's house. He feels it's time to return home. And while he's returning home, he actually leaves in the middle of the night because he doesn't want to confront his uncle. He's running again. He's running again. He's trying to get away. His uncle comes to him and finds him and they have a little conversation, they part ways. And the Bible says that when he got to the brook of Jabok, the fort of Jabok, he sent his wives and his children and his servants and his 11 children, and they crossed the ford to the other side of the river. And he stood there alone. Verse 24 of chapter 32, the Bible says, And when Jacob was left alone, a man wrestled with him until the breaking of the day. Jacob seemed to be attacked by this unknown assailant. I have another picture. It's commonly known as Jacob wrestles an angel. Because by the end of the wrestling match, the, the guy that Jacob was wrestling with, now the Bible says he wrestled with a man. Probably the guy didn't have wings, but you know, the artists like to do things like that. And Jacob said, the man said, I've got, you've got to let me go because the day is breaking. I've got to go. Jacob said, I'm not letting you go until you bless me. Jacob realized at some point in this wrestling match, he was not wrestling a mere human, but he was wrestling with God 
in the flesh. And he said, what is your name? And Jacob had to utter that name. That identity that had been placed on him as a child, deceiver, supplanter, line butter, conniver, trickster, that name that represented everything about him that he did not like, that name that he had been running from from day one. Pause, Sila. Sometimes we're just running from a phantom. Sometimes we're running from an identity that's been placed on us, but we have accepted it. We don't like it, but we've accepted it. And we try to run from that. And Jacob is running from this identity. And the angel says, I'm going to bless you by causing you to stop and take identify with who you have become. And Jacob had to say, my name is Jacob. My name is supplanter. My name is heel grabber. My name is deceiver. My name is the one who connives and tries to get ahead of the other. That is who I am. And when Jacob came face to face with who he was. The angel tells Jacob, you will no longer be called Jacob, but Israel. For as you have striven with God and with men and have prevailed. I'm going to change your name from a supplanter, a deceiver, a conniver to a prince who has power with God. So Jacob named that place Peniel, saying, I have seen God face to face in my life has been delivered. When Jacob walked away from that encounter, he walked a little differently because the only way the angel was able to subdue Jacob was he put his hip out of joint. So from that day forward, Jacob walked with a limp. He walked with a reminder of this encounter he had with God. And so we get to the text that we opened with this morning. God says to Jacob many years later, Jacob has, his children are not adults, they have grandchildren, and they've made some decisions that have really impacted Jacob negatively. You can read it for yourself in the preceding chapters of 34, 33, and not cool things, some pretty rough, rough stuff. Jacob's distressed and upset, his family's falling apart, his sons are going about killing people en masse, he's, he's not a happy camper, he's not living the best life. Kind of like his own identity is coming back to bite him a little bit. And God says to Jacob, arise and go to Bethel and dwell there. Go back to the place you first had that encounter with me. Go back to that place that I first tapped you on the shoulder and made you aware that I have a calling on your life. Maybe some of you can remember the first place. Uh, maybe today is the first time you've encountered God. You're here all new and never been to church before. God bless you. You're welcome if you're joining us online. And that's, that's the case. Then I'm thankful God is using Pentecostal Lighthouse as your Bethel as your first encounter with God. But likely, more than, more than likely, your encounter with God was not in this building, but your first encounter was somewhere else. And God is saying, I don't necessarily need you to go back to that, that physical location, but go back to that place in your mind where you first encountered me. And I want you to make an altar there. I find it fascinating that Jacob, in all of his dealings with God, had never built an altar to the Lord. I don't find it, and maybe I didn't search hard enough, but I didn't find it until this moment. When Jacob is, you know, on his third God calling, 
if you will. The first one was when the angels visited him while he was running from his dad and his brother. The second one was when he wrestled with the angel when he was running from his uncle. And he's trying to get home, and he's, he's facing all this turmoil in his life. Now he's facing the ill consequences of his family and perhaps the, the negative effects of his poor parenting. And Jacob is now facing God, and God says, Jacob, go back to Bethel and build an altar there. Jacob goes back to Bethel. While Jacob had perhaps made some small life changes... While Jacob had made, no doubt, some, some, some minor adjustments, he said, well, I'll give God a tenth of all that I own. I'll, I'll make sure I serve God the rest of my life. But ultimately, Jacob walked away and kind of went back to the old Jacob. The Bible says he goes to Bethel and he builds an altar. But before Jacob builds an altar, he remembered. See, because his grandfather Abraham may build a lot of altars. An altar was something like this. If you throw that picture on the screen there, it was a, uh, it was a, a small rec square or rectangular structure built out of rocks. God was pretty particular. He said, I want you to take rocks that are not cut. You don't cut these rocks. You take natural stones and you, you build them up and you, you, you put an animal on this altar. You sacrifice, you kill the animal, spill his blood and you lay the animal on the wood of the altar and you set the wood on fire and the wood that burns will consume the animal and the smoke will arise. And while that, that animal is being consumed by the fire, you pray and you talk to me in that place and we'll have, we'll have a communion there. And this was the pattern. Abraham built altars. Isaac built altars. But Jacob, he had these encounters with God, but rarely did he ever build an altar. But Jacob goes back to Bethel, goes back to that place. See, you can have an experience with God. You can even see angels and wrestle with angels. You can have miraculous encounters with God. But unless you build an altar at that place, unless there's some kind of sacrifice that you bring and you lay something down and surrender of yourself, then you will leave unchanged. When you build an altar, you allow God to alter your condition. If you build the altar, God will alter your condition. The altar will alter you. Look at your neighbor and say, the altar will alter you. So you build an altar so that God can change something on the inside. Jacob began to make life change. Look at verse 2 of Genesis 35. The Bible says, So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, Put away the foreign gods among you and purify yourself and change your clothes. Put away the false gods. See, they had little idols they would carry with them from their homesteads. Rachel and Leah grew up in a pagan area where Abraham originally was from in Haran. And, and God had told Abraham many years ago, leave your father's house and everything with it, all of his idols, leave it behind and go to the land of promise that I'll show you. 
And, and now, now a, a, a Jacob is, is finding a place to, to, to uh, commit himself to God. And the Bible says that, that he, 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 he gets rid of all of the foreign gods. He says, okay, family, let's, get, let's come together, fam. We're going to get rid of all these idols. I want you to put them in a pile here. We're going to put them in this bag. And then we're, uh, sons, I want you to spend the afternoon. You dig a pit six feet deep next to this terebinth tree. And I want us to take this bag of idols. Everyone, did everyone clean up the idols? Come on, you check your, your sacks. You check all your pendants that you wear around your neck, all the little the, the, the amulets and the, the, the things that represent these false gods. Put them in this bag. Fam, we're going to bury them under this tree. Boys, I want you to cover that pit up. And they covered that pit up, and the Bible says that they buried their idols under the terebinth tree. And Jacob says, that's not enough, fam. We need to change your clothes. You need to wear something else. What you've been wearing is not good. You need to change your garments. We're going to encounter God. And when God lets us encounter him, we're going to be different than when we entered that place. Arise, let us go to Bethel that we may make an altar to God who answers me in the day of my distress and has been me with me wherever I have gone. When Jacob built an altar to God, the Bible says that he called Bethel. He changed Bethel's name. And he changed it in verse 7. So he called the place El Bethel. El means God. And so he changed the name of the house of God to God of the house of God. Because when I have an encounter with God... I realize I've just entered God's house. But when I build an altar, I begin to develop a relationship with the God of the house of God. I'm not just, well, you, you know, you can walk into somebody's home. You can be invited over to their house for a party. You can go to their house for the Super Bowl party, and you can go there for the snacks. That's where I go. If I go to a Super Bowl party, just mark it down. I'm there for the food, so make sure you have something good. I ain't there to watch the game because I don't like football. But I'll go for the food. <laughs> the Super Bowl food's good. Right? So, so or FIFA, whatever your, whatever your sport of choice is, basketball, I, I'll come. I'll come to your playoff game. I'll come, but make sure you have some good snacks there because that's, that's why I'm there. <laughs> so, you know, you can go to a party and never meet the owner of the house. Right? You can go to somebody's party. You can show up there, and you can be like, man, this is a nice house. I had a good time. That was fun. You had some good snacks. But I never develop a relationship with the owner of the home. But when I begin to have a meal with them, when I begin to sit down and talk to them, and they talk to me, and I listen, and they listen, now I begin to develop a relationship with the man or the woman of the house, and now I have a relationship with the person of the house. It's the same way with God. When you can come into the house of God and have an encounter here, you can have a miraculous experience. You can be healed in your body. I've known people that were, were raised from sicknesses and walked away from God. They walked away from a relationship with God because they had a Bethel experience but they never had the El Bethel experience where they got to know the God of the house of God. And the only way I get to know the God of the house of God is I've got to build an altar. I've got to build an altar. I'm coming to a close. An altar is a, a collection of stones. And it seems barbaric today. It does. I, I won't lie to you. It seems weird to take an animal to slit its throat and spill its blood and then burn its carcass on the altar and say, I'm praying to God. That, that 
If that was what we had set up here this morning, I'm pretty sure all of y'all would have just walked out the door and said, that place is crazy. Don't, don't ever go there. You would, have, you, would have, you would have gotten on Yelp. You would have gotten on Google and said, don't go to this place ever. They, they, weird things happen there. No, that is not cool. That is not a barbecue place. That is, that's something else. But in these days, the Bible tells us that it was the blood of the animal that made a way for people to enter into God's presence. Because you understand God is a holy God. He has to judge sin fairly. Romans teaches us that the wages of sin, the payment for sin, is death. It always comes down to that. No matter what, I've transgressed God and God cannot just wipe away the slate. You you think of a a, a child molester that goes before the court. He cannot go before the court and say, Judge, I've done all this community service. I've given millions of dollars to children's orphanages all the world. And I promise I'll never go near another child again. Uh, And the judge, if if he stood up in the podium and said, Okay, no problem. We'll wipe your slate clean. You're no longer guilty. This won't be on your record that you've, you've taken advantage of these children or you've used these kids and messed up their lives forever. We'll just forget about all of that. No problem. You've done all these good works. You've done all these nice things for the community. No problem. We would call that judge corrupt. We would say, who bought you off? We'd find out what happened to you, that you're letting this, this criminal go free. He's got to be judged according to the law. And so it is with God. God cannot look at the record of our sin and say, no problem, you've done all these good works. You've not lied. You've not stealed. You know, you turned your life around. You did all these wonderful things. You gave money to the homeless. You fed the, the needy. And, and all of these good works come before you, and no problem, we'll just wipe away your sin. God says, no, still have to deal with the fact that there's a stain of sin on your life that cannot be erased by your own good works and good efforts blood had to be spilt so here here's what I'm going to do fam I want you to take this animal and you lay your hand on the head of that animal and so the priests would come and they'd lay the hand on the head of that animal they'd tell the person if you were bringing the offering you say okay come on over here George put your hand on the head of that animal and while George's hand is on the head of that animal they'd cut the throat of that animal spill its blood and collect it in a basin sorry it's being a little gruesome just want to tell you like it is Because what was happening there was the sins of the person were transferred to the animal. For that split second and that split moment, God let the sins of the person be attributed to the life of that animal. And the animal's life was taken and its blood was spilt. Because the Bible says without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. God said, I'll let let the animal take the place for you. Now God didn't just want any animal. It had to be an edible animal, an animal that you would have already probably killed to feed your family. And oftentimes the sacrifices were so big that the animals that were killed often were handed over to the priests to feed them and their family. They would take a portion, offer it to God, and the rest of the animal would not be wasted. It wouldn't be consumed totally, but it would be given to the priests and their families to eat and partake of. So it was a, it was a, it was a way of commerce in a way. So this altar was with blood had to be sacrificed. And it represented a few things. See, the altar represented a place where I was actually making a conscious change for my actions. It's no little thing to take the life of anything. 
even to take the life of an animal, that's a significant thing for any farmer, any individual who's raising an animal. To let this animal take your place was a significant thing. It was a sacrifice. It was something you gave. It was part of your livelihood. It was part of your estate. And you surrendered it to God. And so it was like you saying, I, I, God, I want to be so close to you. I'm willing to part with this thing that is so close to me. The so thing, this thing that is so dear to my heart, I'm willing to part and give it to you because I want to be close to you. The sacrifice on the altar represented the life of the person. There was a few different sacrifices. One of them was called a burnt offering where the whole thing was consumed. And it represented I'm surrendering my whole life to God. So what is this all about? When Jacob finally said, okay, God, you've encountered being, but now it's time for me to respond to you. I'm going to respond with repenting. I'm going to respond with worship. I'm going to respond with prayer. I'm going to respond with a real commitment. Then the Bible said, God said to Jacob, Jacob, your name is no longer Jacob, but you shall be called Israel. When Jacob built an altar, God changed Jacob's name. Now today, where are we at today? Well, we're in a place now where God does not require us to sacrifice animals, thank God. Because the Bible tells us that Jesus manifested himself in the flesh and came. And the Bible says he offered himself as the perfect sacrifice. Because really, an animal cannot take your place. An animal cannot replace you in the atonement for your sin. There had to be a human life that was given and human blood that was spilt in order to atone for the sins. But it could not be a human that had once sinned themselves. They had to be clean and spotless. So God became a man. And, and, and the Bible says in the fullness of time that Mary became pregnant with Jesus Christ. And she gave birth to this, this, this son of God, the the body of God, if you will. And, and Jesus went to the cross and was bruised and beaten, not for his own iniquity, but for my iniquity. The chastisement of my peace was upon him. And it wasn't for his, his healing that he took stripes on his back, but it was for my healing that he allowed the wounds and the stripes to come across his back because he took my place on the cross. So Hebrews teaches us that we don't come to God with the, the sacrifices of animals or bulls and goats, but now we offer unto God the fruit of our lips. We offer unto him the sacrifice of prayer. Well, how do I build an altar, Pastor? You've talked a lot today, and I, I'm, perhaps you're, hopefully you're convinced of the need to have an altar in your life. Pastor, I'll go home and build a, a collection of rocks and pray at that. No, no, see, now the altar you build is not an altar made of stones or hands, but it's an altar in your heart. It's a place of surrender for you. The altar represented a place where you came to God and said, I'm ready to turn around. I've been going this way, but I'm going to make a turn, and I'm going to start going your way. I, I've been doing it this way, God, but now I'm going to go and do it your way. We stand this morning. God wants us to come to the altar, to an altar. The altar is a place where you pray and talk to God with your words. You confess your mistakes, your sins, and say, God, I've messed up. I've made mistakes here, and I, 
I come to this place. I want to make it right with you. I want to give you my life. I want to surrender my all. I want to give myself to you 100%, fully and completely, not withholding, not holding anything back. God, I'm coming in this moment and surrendering my all to you. How do I do that, Pastor? One great way of doing it is by lifting your hands. Lifting your hands is like saying, I surrender. I give up. Because the altar was all about surrender. I surrender myself to God. And yes, it's awkward and uncomfortable. And yes, it might make you feel a little self-conscious. But don't worry. Just close your eyes and focus on the Lord and just say, God, it's just me and you here. I know there's other people around me. We're going to sing a song here in a minute. I'm going to play. Uh, but I'm wondering if there's someone that would we, we like to call this front area an altar. Because it's a place where while you may have encountered the presence of God through worship in the service, it's a place where, like God said, I'm calling Jacob back to Bethel. I'm calling him back to that experience, back to that place of surrender, back to that place where he, he finds me and we have that conversation. And so this altar, this area at the front here represents that, that place of surrender, represents that place where we meet with God and we talk to him about our life. God is wanting to do some great things in this church. God's wanting to do some great things in you this morning. You're not here on accident. You're not here by chance. God